The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 17. And today I'd like for us to return to this passage of Scripture and talk to you a little bit more about this great miracle of the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, This is a miracle that is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, that is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you're wondering what Synoptic means, that simply means that those three Gospels record much of the same events of Jesus' life and they're very similar to one another. But not all of the things that happened in Jesus' life are recorded in the synoptics or the same events. There are some differences. But this is one special miracle that we find in all three of those Gospels. Uh, Aside from the miracle of Jesus' resurrection, I I have to believe that this is the premier miracle in the New Testament. And this is when Jesus was changed from his flesh into his glory, and the disciples were able to see that. And very few times in the Bible was anybody ever able to see the glory of God. And certainly they weren't able to see it in the way that it happened in this passage of Scripture. And so it became a very defining moment in the ministry of Christ and also in the ministry of his disciples. Now, if you'd stand with me, please, we're going to read from Matthew 17. And we'll look at verses 1 through 13 today. Matthew 17, 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word today. And Help us, Lord, as we look into this text, that you would bless our hearts with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We studied this chapter, this particular part of the chapter, for two weeks. And we took a little bit of a break last week as we talked on on giving. 
But this was a miracle that really had a profound effect on the disciples. It was a great miracle for them. It had great value because it really was a confirmation of their faith in Christ. And much of the time, we fail to really understand how radical that the teachings of Jesus were. Uh, when Jesus came, Israel was at a terrible time in their existence. They had a cold, dead formalism in their religion. And Jesus came and he upset the thinking of the religious leaders about the law. He changed their, or tried to change their thinking about what the prophets said, especially in the area of the coming kingdom of the Messiah. And his disciples were brought up in that same kind of religious system, so they thought like they did. And it wasn't easy for them to follow Jesus, especially when he talked to the disciples about the deferral of the kingdom and, and how that they were going to experience personal pain. There would be suffering. He even said that there will be a cross for you. And so it became very difficult for the disciples to get behind Jesus, to really believe that he was the Messiah that was talked about in the Old Testament. So the offsetting of this painful experience that he described in chapter 16 is at the end of the 16th chapter, in the 27th verse, when Jesus made the statement that the kingdom is coming, that after the cross there will be a crown, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father, and he'll bring a reward for all of those that are willing to endure the pain and the suffering of the present hour, willing to suffer the shame and the reproach of his cross, there is a reward coming for them if they're waiting for that reward to come, if they're willing to accept it at a later time. Well, that was a very nice statement. And it was a really nice sentiment for Jesus to tell his disciples about that, but that's not really what they were expecting. He gave them a future promise when they were really wanting something in the present. They wanted something that was real to them in the present. Hebrews says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And this is one of the few times that we, that we see before the resurrection that Jesus actually allowed their faith to be verified. The transfiguration was verification that their faith had been correctly placed in him. Well, what did it show them? Well, it showed them that the cross was not a disgrace, that the cross would yield to the resurrection and the glory of Christ. The transfiguration showed them that the law and the prophets were subject to the mastery of Jesus Christ. When God the Father spoke from heaven, that showed them that Jesus really was working according to the divine plan that had been established before the world was ever created. That he was doing exactly what the Bible said that he should do. So this transfiguration of Jesus, the transformation of him from the physical into the spiritual was a change from the human to the divine and it was also a marvelous metamorphosis for him but at the same time it was a great transformation for his own disciples. Now, we've discussed many of those things in the previous messages but I want to move on and I want to talk to you today about what we should do in light of the transfiguration of Christ. Now we see what a transforming moment that it was for his disciples. And the question for us today is, is it as much a transforming miracle for us as well? The disciples saw Jesus changed into his glory. They saw Elijah and Moses on that mountain. 
Is that transfiguration of Christ and what's said in the word of God about this as real to us as it was to them? And I want to show you before we're through today that it actually is more real to us than it was to them. And you might wonder how that's possible, but I'll show you in just a few minutes. So today I want to give you three suggestions about what you should do in light of the transfiguration. And I I call them suggestions, but they're really nothing more or less than what God's servants must do. So in light of the transfiguration, what we've learned in this passage, what should we do? Well, number one, we are to look for the glory of Christ. Jesus gave the disciples a glimpse of his glory, and that was to turn them away from the present world that they were so concerned about, and to give them a look into the future world. The glory of Christ was was actually the hope that they had an inheritance in heaven. And Christ's glory was to show the disciples that everything that's in this earth beneath is nothing compared to what's coming for us, for all the treasures that we have in heaven above. Now, if you'll notice in verse number 8, the scripture says, And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. That hope of everything that we're going to have in heaven, the hope of what comes in the future, rests in this statement right here, that it's in Jesus only. Now, many times we, we don't see the true depth of meaning in the scriptures. At first glance, it may not become apparent to us, But here we have just a simple, straightforward statement, or so it seems. But it turns out to be a transforming experience for us. Now, after a brief encounter with Moses and Elijah, the disciples opened their eyes, and all that they saw there was Jesus. No one was there but Jesus. He's the only one left for them to look to. Now, they thought that it would be good to walk down the mountain with Moses and Elijah. I mean, what, what better to prove who Jesus really was than if Moses and Elijah should walk down that mountain with them? If Moses should come down, Moses represents the law. And the great argument that Jesus had with the religious leaders was over the law itself. They said Jesus didn't know the law. He didn't keep the law. But what if Moses were to come down from the mountain with Jesus and to say to the people, this is the person that gave me the law. This is the person that that showed me the law himself. He handed it to me on Mount Sinai. He knows about the law. He's the author of the law. Hear him and believe him. We would think, what a great thing to do. Listen to him. Moses would come down and say, this is God. Listen to him. And that would be as good as the voice of God speaking himself. After all, God had spoken from heaven, didn't he? We've seen it in the scriptures that God spoke from heaven. In this passage, he spoke from heaven. But that didn't cause the religious leaders to give up their ideas and to follow Jesus. Now, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, if you would. And we're going to notice in this passage that the voice of God was heard. God spoke from heaven. This was during the Passion Week, just before Jesus was to be crucified. And we'll look here in John, chapter 12, beginning at verse number 27. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
And the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it, said, It thundered. Others said, An angel spake to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So after this voice of God came from heaven, notice that the people still protest. They're still objecting that Jesus could actually be the Messiah. And they said, we have heard out of the law. The law says that the Christ abides forever. So how do you say that the Son of Man must die? Who is this Son of Man? So the voice of God the Father didn't convince them. And rather than to say, well, we heard the voice, and now we understand that our, under, that our, our interpretations of the law are incorrect, our understanding of the law is not right, we need to adjust our thinking and get it in line with what Jesus says. But instead of doing that, they protested. And they said, what are you talking about, Jesus? How can the Messiah die when the law says he will live forever? Who is this Son of Man? So even a voice from heaven didn't convince them. Neither God the Father, or as some suppose that it was a voice of an angel, that did not convince them to believe in him. And you go down to verse number 37. It says, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. So what could be better than for Moses to walk down the mountain? They wouldn't believe God the Father, so Moses it seems would be a better witness even than God. And then what about Elijah? We go back to Matthew 17, and there in the 8th verse, it says they lifted up their eyes and they saw no man save Jesus only. And so why did Elijah disappear? What if Elijah should walk down the mountain? What if this great prophet of God from the Old Testament should come down with them? Would the people be convinced if Elijah came and spoke to them? Well, it makes sense to me that they would. In the 10th verse it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? The Jews already believed that it was necessary for Elijah to come before the Messiah. They based their belief in the Old Testament text. They looked into the book of Malachi. The last words that are written in the Old Testament said that, there, that Elijah would come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. They based their opinions on Malachi 3 verse number 1 and also in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 that says that a messenger must come and that messenger will announce the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus agreed with that, and he explained who this Elijah was. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now the disciples were confused about Elijah, the religious leaders were confused about Elijah. So what if Elijah should just come down from the mountain and straighten them all out? Would they believe if, Isaiah, if Elijah did this? Well, no. 
God had already given them an Elijah-like prophet. He gave them one that spoke in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And instead of believing him, they cut off his head. Now, Herod Antipas was the one who actually cut off John the Baptist's head, but he didn't do anything more than the religious leaders would have done, given the chance. They didn't believe what John the Baptist said. They wouldn't bring forth fruits of repentance, showing that they had believed. They didn't come to his baptism, showing they believed. And so if Elijah had walked down that mountain with the disciples, the religious leaders would have done to him just what they did to John the Baptist. Now, here's the point that I'm trying to get across to you and the truth of the matter. They would not believe the testimony of Christ. And if you will not believe what Jesus says, if you do not believe his testimony, then you won't believe though you see miracles. And you will not believe though someone should come back from the dead. You would not believe if God the Father spoke from heaven. You would not believe if angels were to speak to you. If you can't look up and trust Jesus Christ just for what he says, then you won't believe anything else. You must believe the word of his testimony. And if you don't believe what he says, then there is nothing that will convince you. Now, in this church, what we do is we preach Jesus only. We preach Christ only. We preach his death and his resurrection. We preach the glories of hell. We preach the the, uh, glories of heaven, rather, for the redeemed. And we preach the goriness of hell for the reprobate. And what do people do? They come in and they hear the message that we preach from here. And instead of choosing life in Jesus Christ and instead of choosing heaven, they choose hell. Does that make sense to anyone? Does it make sense for people to come in and hear the gospel of Christ and walk out refusing it? And yet the truth of the matter is you can't be saved any other way. You can't be saved any way than by looking to Jesus only. And so you have to see Jesus in his glory. Now sometime when you get a chance, I'd recommend that you do this. Look up Charles Spurgeon's sermon. You can find it on the internet. Charles Spurgeon's sermon on Matthew 17, 8. And the title of his sermon was Jesus Only. And he explains what the disciples could have seen rather than Jesus only. He says that they could have seen nothing. And he equates that to those who hear the message of Christ. They hear about heavenly things, but those things don't register with them. They go out, they forget them, they ignore them. The information passes from their minds as if they had heard and seen nothing at all. And they're left with nothing because they don't see Jesus. Then he says that they could have lifted up their eyes and saw Moses only. And he said how poor comfort that would be if all they saw was Moses. And there are people that put their trust not in Jesus but in Moses. And by that I mean that they put their trust in the things that they're trying to do, put their trust in their good works and the fact that they're trying to live a good life, they're trying to be just a little bit better. They establish their righteousness by the sacraments that they keep, by the rites and the rituals and all the things that they do day after day. They're trusting in Moses. And Spurgeon says, Unhappy day indeed if popish counterfeits of legal shadows should supplant gospel fact and substance. Blessed be God, we have not so learned Christ. We see something better than Moses only. And then they could have looked and they could have seen Elijah only. Instead of the 
gentle Savior who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. They could have seen Elijah, that great prophet of the Old Testament who would call down the judgment of God, who would call down fire from heaven and consume the prophets of Baal, or in this case, those false religious leaders of Israel. Spurgeon says, All this power for vengeance would have been a poor exchange for the gracious omnipotence of the friend of sinners. Who would prefer the slayer of priests to the Savior of men? And so what do you do? Well, you look to the glory of Christ. You look to him only. Don't be content for, for others to sneak in another God, a substitute God. Only Christ can save. He's the way, the truth, and the life. God says, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And that God that spoke those words in the Old Testament is the Jesus of the New Testament. And we preach him because there is no one else. There aren't many paths that lead to God. There's only one, and that's Jesus Christ. So that's a, that's a great truth from the trans, uh, transfiguration for you to believe and apply. Look to the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ proves that he's the one that's worthy to worship. It was great to be upon that mountain, and that's what Peter said. Lord, it's good for us to be here, but worship is not that place. Worship is not a mountain. Worship is not a building. There is no one but Christ that has glory, and that speaks volumes for the validity of placing our faith in him and of worshiping him. So as a Christian, thinking about the transformation of Christ, think about the glory of Christ. He's the only one that has glory. He's the only one that we're to look to. He's our help. He's the only one who is our Savior. We must look to him and look to him only. Then, secondly... Thinking about what Christians do in light of what happened in the transfiguration, live for the return of Christ. You see, the transfiguration was a preview of Christ's second coming. Jesus said in 16, chapter 16, verse 27, that he was coming in the glory of the Father. He said to the disciples, There are some of you that will not taste death till you've seen the Son of Man coming in his glory. And what he did with that statement was to directly tie the transfiguration to the second coming. So let me give you a couple of important thoughts about the second coming of Christ. The return of Jesus Christ is called for us as Christians the blessed hope. So how are we to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we expect his return. Expect it. And I want to emphasize that the hope of his return is not a shaky, maybe or may not be type of hope. And sometimes we do use hope that way. We may say, well, I hope I get a job. And, and there's, a, there's a, a statement there of expectation that's mixed in with that. It's expectation mixed in with an element of doubt. We desire it. It would be great to have it. But by no means is it guaranteed, so we're not too sure that it will happen. But when the Bible uses the word hope in relation to a Christian, it never uses it in that way. God's hope, or this hope, or our hope rather, has God's promise as its foundation. Paul wrote in Titus, Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, listen, in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Now you see that? That's a very interesting statement. Do you know why? Because we weren't here before the world began. And so we're not talking about a promise that God has made to us only, but we're talking here about a promise that was established between God and God. We're actually speaking of the eternal covenant that's made between the Father and the Son, where the Father said to the Son that he would give eternal life to as many as he had given him. And that's explained to us further in John 17. So what I want to emphasize about this is that promise of giving us to Christ is more than a promise that's made to us, but it's a promise that's made between the Father and the Son. That it is a God-to-God promise. And that has to be unshakable or else God the Father is lying to us and lying to his own Son. And if God should lie, the one who is perfect truthfulness, if he should lie, then he can be God. And so how incredibly strong is it for us to have a promise with the double security that God cannot lie and God has made the promise to God. And that's why our hope of eternal life is so sure. The hope of Jesus coming back is so sure because it's backed by God's attributes. It's backed by the glory of God. It's a promise that is sure. And it's not just our salvation that at stake God's existence is at stake. He cannot be God and lie. Hebrews states it in this way, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, unchangeable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So our hope is in the unchangeable God. God cannot lie. And he confirms the promise in two ways. His word ought to be good enough for us. But God also gave an oath. Our hope is so sure that Christ is coming back that it's anchored in heaven to that solid rock who is Jesus Christ himself. So that hope is a sure expectation. Now an interesting point I think that could be made about it is how often that that promise is repeated in one form or another throughout the New Testament. In one form or another, the second coming of Christ is mentioned in every New Testament book except the book of Galatians. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament and there are 318 times when the Bible talks about the second coming of Christ. And so there's much emphasis that's placed on it. We know that Christ is coming back. And if you're a student of the Word, if you take time to read the Bible, actually read the Bible, you're not going to be able to miss that. You can't read the Bible without being reminded that Jesus is coming back. So we see that in Paul's writing where he called it the blessed hope. Peter refers to it as a living hope. It's called a better hope. It's called rejoicing in hope. It's highly prominent doctrine of the New Testament. But it's not just doctrine. This is a doctrine that has a practical side. So we, we just don't go around living with our head in the clouds because now we have knowledge of a doctrine. 
the doctrine is actually given in the epistle or in this in in the epistles where Paul and Peter and the others write as a passive passionate incentive to our holiness that we must live for the return of Christ. Now, folks, here is something about this. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back, a righteous life should be produced by that belief. If, it does, if, it, if it's not produced, then you really don't believe it. If you have hope that you abide in Christ, that you believe that he is coming back, you'll live so as not to be ashamed when he appears. See, when Christ comes back, the whole world is going to change. The second coming will usher in the golden age of the millennium. And at the end of the millennium, this world that's been cursed by sin will be renewed and it will pass away with a stunning conflagration. There will be a huge boom and the whole world will be set on fire and vaporized. You know what Peter said about that? He said, you better think about that. better think about the second coming of Christ. He wrote, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation, that's your way of life and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, when Christ comes, he comes suddenly. There's no warning of it. There's not going to be an announcement in the papers about it. You won't find it on the Internet. Now, the Internet gets news around very fast, but nobody on the Internet is going to know about this until after the fact. When he comes, they'll report it, but there is no news after the fact. Do you know what that means? That means that when Christ comes back, it's going to be a memorialized event. This is something that people are going to remember. You know, you may not realize it, but this year will be will mark 50 years at the near the end of this of this year, 50 years since John Kennedy was assassinated. That happened in 1963. I remember what I was doing when we received the news that John Kennedy was assassinated. I was in the fourth grade, and I can remember the teacher and and how shocked that she was by that and all the chatter and everything was going on. I was too young to really understand the impact of it, but I remember where I was and what I was doing when John Kennedy was assassinated. Now, I'm telling you that when Jesus comes back, it's going to be far more monumental than that. This is bigger than any event that's ever happened in history. It's going to be remembered. The precise moment will be memorialized. And I hope to God that you're not doing something that brings shame to the Savior when he comes back. The Apostle John wrote, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so the suddenness of it, the expectation of it, the imminent nature of it should cause us to be looking for it. Now, the Bible says to look for the coming of Christ. You know what that means? Essentially, it means to prepare yourself through holiness. It doesn't mean standing and gazing up into the sky, waiting for the clouds to part, straining your eyes to see the angels that Jesus says will come with him. No, when the Bible says to live with the expectation that Christ will come and to look for his coming, it means to look for him and prepare for him by living a righteous life. 
And by looking at many of the people in our own church and looking at the lives they live and the things they do, they are not looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Those that aren't prepared, they're not literally looking anyway, so we don't have to worry about that. They're living like Christ is never going to come back. That's why so many Christians are not afraid of their unholy activities. They are living like they are not looking. So if you really believe that Jesus is coming back, live for his return. Show people that you believe what you say. You really do believe that he's coming back. Christ was transfigured. He showed his glory, and that's proof that he was telling the truth, that he is coming back. Now, another thing that you should do as you live for the return of Christ is you should visualize his return. Now, here's where things start to get really good, and I want you to pay close attention. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now really, you can't get any more visual than the way that Paul describes it in that passage. God's people will know Christ when he comes back because we'll see it. Now, quite frankly, in my opinion, the jury is still out about whether the whole world will see the initial coming of Christ. I I rather think that they probably won't. But I do believe that when he comes back as the king of kings and he's ready to set up his kingdom, then the whole world will see him come back. When he comes back with vengeance, all will see it. But I don't have any doubt about this, that when Christ comes back to take us up, we're going to see him. When Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, after the resurrection, the angel said, "'Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven?' The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. So the angel said, you'll see him coming back. And the angels asked the question, why are you standing here gazing up into heaven? And what they really mean by that statement is, why are you looking up as if you have lost him? He's gone away, but he's coming back. And he's going to come back just like you saw him go up. And the Apostle John said the same thing. It'll be visual. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He shall appear, and we shall see him as he is. You know, there are many things that I'd like to see. Many things. When I went to Israel... Gary and I went to Israel. I mean, my mind was just filled with wonder looking at all the places that I'd read about for so many years in the Bible. There are other places that I'd like to go, places I hope to see someday. But what Christian would trade any of those things to see the Lord Jesus Christ? I went to Israel and I saw the places where he walked. I saw the sea that he calmed. I saw the river where he was baptized. I saw a little grotto where many people probably believe wrongly that he was born. I saw the cliff that they tried to throw him off of in Nazareth. I saw where he preached the Sermon on the Mount. I saw the platform where the temple stood that he cleansed. I saw the garden where he prayed, as it were, great sweat drops of blood. I saw the place where they beat him before they crucified him. I saw two places that claimed to be his tomb. I saw a place that they said that he was crucified. I saw the Mount of Olives where the Bible says that he will stand when he comes back and will divide it with the great earthquake. I saw all of that. 
But Jesus wasn't there. I'd trade all of it to see him. I'd trade all of that to hear his voice. I'd trade all of that for the sight of him. I'd trade every place that I'd visited or ever visited in all the rest of my life just to walk through the pearly gates of heaven for one time. And you know something? You know, the question was asked in the forum class this morning about do we know where we're going when we die? I know that I'm going to see him. I know that I'm going to talk to him. I know that I'm going to heaven. I've heard about it. I've read about it. I've visualized it. And when I see him, I'm sure that I'll say, the half wasn't told me. He's fairer than the lilies of rarest bloom. He's sweeter than honey out of the comb. He's all that my hungering spirit needs. I'd rather have Jesus and let him lead. So Christ will appear. And if you believe him and you have that hope that you'll see him, how can you not be changed by that? The disciples were changed. The visualization of that glory of Christ changed them. After the resurrection, this was an event that stuck in their minds and they proclaimed it. We saw the glory of Christ. Now before he died, they were told not to tell anybody. Ninth verse says, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. They obeyed that. They held their peace. They didn't tell. But when they he had risen, they said, We saw the glory of Christ. We know who he is. We believe everything that he said. We believe that he's coming back. And here's the thing that I talked about in the beginning that you really do need to get here, that as a Christian, you have just as much or even more sure hope than they had. And let me show you why that's true. When Peter wrote about the transfiguration in Second Peter, he said, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He said, we saw that. We heard the voice of God the Father. And this is what he said following. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as a light that shineth unto a dark place until the day dawn of the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He said we have a more sure word of prophecy. You know what that means? It means that we have the Bible. And it means that the Bible is better than what we can see with our eyes. And the Bible is better than what we can hear with our ears. And that's because your ears and your eyes, those are human. They can deceive you. But the word of God came from God and it is divine. God spoke this word. And it's better than if you heard a voice that came from heaven. And so when you see it that way, you see... You visualize this. You see the word of God with your eyes. It transcends all the senses that we have. It's better than uh, reading God's word. It's better than what you can actually see out there with your eyes or hear someone else with your ears. So when God says, hear me, and God says, see me, he's saying to us, pick up your Bible. Because you see him and you hear him through the pages of scripture. So how do you visualize the return of Christ? Can you do that? Uh, of course you can. You can read it here. You can immerse yourself in it. The description of Christ coming back is in the Word of God. It's more sure than you could see it with your own eyes. It's right here in the Word of God. 
So I want you to get that today. Look at the glory of Christ. Look to him alone. Live for the return of Christ because Jesus is coming back. We have a more sure word of prophecy, better than seeing with your eyes, better than hearing with your ears. Jesus promised he would return and his transfiguration proved it. Now very quickly, this won't take long. Number three, what should you do? Listen to the voice of Christ. Now let me get personal with you for a moment. It was great to be on the mountaintop with Jesus. Seeing Moses and Elijah, that was a marvelous thing. Seeing the clothing of Christ changed into glistening white. Seeing the glory of Jesus shining through the veil of his flesh as it was taken away. That was a tremendous sight. What, what, what a transforming sight. Jesus was transformed and so were the disciples. And the Bible says that there was a great cloud, a bright cloud that overshadowed them while they were on the mountain. And God the Father spoke. And you know the result of God speaking? They were terrified. They were shocked. They were stunned and they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And and that word sore, that means like, yikes! I mean, it's a superlative. It means like shaking in their boots. It means like unable to gather themselves. They were trembling so badly. They were sore afraid. And do you understand? And this is such an important point. Do you understand that without Jesus, that is exactly how you would be in the presence of God? I'm amused by people that say they saw God in a dream or they saw Jesus in their bathroom this morning. And you say, well, what did you do? Oh, we had a conversation and I just kept on shaving. No, no. If God showed up in your bathroom, you'd slit your throat. I mean, I, I don't care if you have a Gillette Fusion 32 Pro Glide with so many blades that you can't possibly get a nick of any kind. You'd shave your skull, shave the flesh right off of your skull if you saw God in your bathroom. On verse number 7, Jesus touched the disciples and he said, Arise, be not afraid. If you don't know Jesus, you have every reason to be totally terrified. When you die or when he returns, you'll face the wrath of God. You see, the disciples were terrified when God was in a good mood because Jesus invited them to come up on the mountain. But when they heard from God, they were terrified. What do you think that God will do if you reject Jesus Christ? You have every reason to be scared out of your wits if you're an unbeliever. You don't want to meet God without Jesus. So listen, this is what Jesus says. Be not afraid. He says, I'll save you. I want you to meet my Father. The only way that you can get to him is to come with the invitation that I give to you. Come up on this mountain with me because I'm your safety. I'm your security. I am your Savior. And so the question for us is, do we trust him? Do we really believe in him? Will you go up on the mountaintop with Jesus today? Look for his glory. Live for his return. Listen to his voice. He says, be not afraid. He is the Savior. And he's the only one that we can look to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we've studied this morning. Jesus only. And I pray, Lord, that everyone here will be looking to you as the only hope for the salvation of their soul. And I do pray, Lord, that they're not trusting in anything else. 
There's so many people that are preaching a different message and different ways to get to God and everybody claiming everybody has their own path. There's only one path and that's the one that you've given in your word, the infallible word of God. We must come to you through Jesus Christ. And then, Father, for Christians, members of our church that are not living like you're going to return, I pray that you change their hearts, that we would see the holiness of lies that needs to be seen in this church. I would see people that look and talk and act like they really do know you and really do believe that you're coming back. We'll never convince anyone, we'll never lead anybody to the cross unless our lives are a living testimony of it every day. Father, help us to be that. We trust you for it. We ask your Holy Spirit to convict us of this today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.